Good morning, Trinity. Today's uh, Bible reading is from James 1.1, and uh, that's what we're going to be reading this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Well, thanks for reading for us this morning, John. I appreciate it. Uh, sorry that I, I asked you to do this for me, and then I gave you about 10 words, but uh, you, know, you passed the test, brother. Thanks for reading that. We're going to try and get more and more families involved in the service by, by reading. So if that's something you'd be interested in doing, you can send me a note. We've got a, a, someone lined up for next week. But uh, if I don't hear from you, I'm going to start tapping people on the shoulder as well. Well, if you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, you can open up with me to James chapter 1. Uh, and we're going to drop a link to that in the comments sections as well. But I'd, I'd love if you would open up you know, even a physical Bible in front of you. We're starting a new series this week out of James, and we're calling it A Faith That Works. And so there's a, there's a couple reasons that I'm asking you to open up in your own Bibles. And, and if you've been with us for a little while, you've probably heard these, but let me remind you. Uh, what I want you to do by having the, the text in front of you, in a, especially in a physical Bible, is to, to get used to flipping through these verses yourself, to, to become familiar with working verse by verse through a passage yourself. And, and I want you to also see that, that what we're talking about actually does come from the Bible. This is kind of like fact-checking the pastor. Uh, it's there. Trust me, you can read it for yourself. Uh, but also, and maybe finally, uh, as we work through verse by verse, uh, I want you to start to see these connections for yourself so that when you go to the Bible in your own time, you can start to, to study and see these themes and these, these ideas start to jump out all on your own. And so we're starting this morning to study the book of James. And so, uh, again, John only read one verse for us this morning, and I, I want us to just kind of slow down and, and, and camp on, on these words just a little bit, especially as we sort of introduce the book and, and introduce James in light of Scripture as a whole, too. So often, I don't know about you, but so often when I get to the greeting section of a letter, like chapter 1, verse 1 here, I often just kind of skim through it to, to get to the real thing, right? It's like, okay, to the church from James, great. But there's so much more to that here. And even in, in, in some of the, the longer uh, letter greetings, Paul uses six or seven verses in Romans. Maybe, maybe there I'll slow down and read, but uh, James 1.1, 1, 1, it just seems like, okay, let's, let's get to it, James, here. But as, a, as a church uh, over the past few months, one of the things we've looked at as we went through the book of Ruth and then the book of Habakkuk is, is we've spent weeks... Uh, talking about how, how God is in control. This, this major theme to the text of how God is in control. And as I was preparing this week, I was reminded that, that one of the most compelling, one of the most mind-bending aspects of what the Bible teaches about the nature and the character of God is his immensity. Just how great he is. There's, there is nothing that exists that he doesn't rightfully govern or know about. We call this, this God's omniscience. We call this God's sovereignty over everything. See, every, every star, every planet in the farthest reaches of the universe, all of the greatest thing, God knows everything about all of them. And he rules and reigns and, and governs all of it. Yet in the midst of that, in the midst of his immensity, he's also so dialed into the smallest minutia of the universe as well. 
And with God, it even goes beyond just being aware of all the, the micro-level things of every cell, of every plant, of every small, creepy, crawly thing. But the Bible says that he has taken a special interest in us. Now, the Bible talks about this uh, a lot, but here's just a couple of examples. Jesus says this in Luke 12, verse 7. He says, well, well even the hairs of your head are numbered, and so fear not. Now, for some of us, that numbering of the hair on our heads may be getting easier by the day, but that's not the point here. Look at what Jesus says. He says, fear not. Fear not because God knows this small, minute detail about you. And here's what the Bible teaches us. Here's what scripture teaches us. That in the midst of the immensity of God, he is so dialed into us as humans who were made in his image that he knows every little intricate detail about us, like the number of hairs on our heads. Think about that for just a minute. Maybe, maybe, maybe that reminder, that's worth the price of admission this morning. That, that's what you needed to hear this morning, that, that God cares about you and he knows you. But there's even more. Look with me at Psalm 139. The psalmist writes, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, every one of the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. He's saying, uh, you know, God knows the hairs on your head and he knows all the days of your life. Even before you were born, God knew the days that you would live, all the days of your life. And he knows that because elsewhere in Psalm 139, he says that God, that, that God knit you together in your mother's womb. He put you together. He put together your giftedness, your personality. He, he knit that with your spirit, with, with who you are, the thing that makes you you. And so we have this immense God, sovereign over everything, ruling over everything, that cares about every little detail about you. Often one of the, the hardest journeys for information like this to make is that 18 inches from our head down to our hearts. And so if you've been around church for a while, or maybe you, you grew up in church and have kind of gone your own way and kind of turned your back on that for a time, but you're listening now, I, I know that sometimes this information just gets stuck in your head as, okay, I, I believe this theological principle that God knows us. And it's really easy as well for us to just default a statement like that to the us. I get it. God knows people. People were created in his image. But we have to move from the us in this moment to the me. If you're just checking out church, maybe for the first time this morning, first of all, welcome. I'm, I'm so glad that you have, have carved out some time to be here with us this morning. Thank you for doing that. But if this seems overwhelming, all of this seems overwhelming and maybe even untrue because of how overwhelming it is to you, let me just say it is overwhelming. It is true and it is also overwhelming. As followers of Jesus, we believe that there is a God who created everything, who knows everything, who is ultimately in control of everything and yet knows about, cares about, and loves every single person. Listen, he knows about the hair, not on our heads, but on your head. He knows all the days of your life. Now, we don't do this with everything in the Bible, but in this case, we do actually have to personalize what the Bible is saying because God is interested in you. 
He knows the hairs on your head. He knows the days you will live. And even more than that, he, he put together those hairs and that thing that is you, and he put those days together so that you might walk in the fullness of joy and you might bring the greatest amount of glory to him. On, on, on top of all that, as if this isn't enough, there are some really, truly spectacular claims about what God is all about and what he, he wants for you and what he wants for your hairs and what he wants for your days. Look at Psalm 16, verse 11 as well. The psalmist writes, You've made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are, are pleasures forevermore. In your presence there's fullness of of joy. Now we could walk through the Bible and we could find dozens, if not hundreds of verses that say this, that, that God brings joy, that God is love, that, that when we're walking with God, that's when we find our meaning and our value and our purpose. And that's what this is about. And the reason we're stopping here this morning and talking about this right now, the reason this is so important that, that so many people have this idea that, that God is just up there waiting for us to mess up so he can unleash the lightning bolts. And maybe that's, that's a little bit overdramatic. Maybe we've confused our understanding with God, who the Bible often refers to as Father, and we have, we've placed our relationships with our earthly, imperfect fathers, and we see God the Father through that lens. Or even maybe we've just confused our concept of God with something more like karma. Well, I did all these bad things, so God, there's no way he can use me. I've messed up so much, I must deserve these trials. I must deserve this bad stuff in my life. Listen, nothing could be farther from that than the, the, the truth. Yes, there are, there, are, there are consequences to our actions, but God is not just waiting for us to mess up so that he can punish us. God is love. I was reminded of that this week as I had a, a short sermon clip go through my social media that, that love is not just something God does. Love isn't just a, a characteristic of God. It is part of him. He is love. And sometimes we feel like, and sometimes people checking out the church of Jesus just feel like God is, is just a killjoy. Right? He's, trying to, he's trying to withhold stuff from us. But, but that's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say, God is holy, so stop smiling and get in line. Look at that verse again. I'll, I'll read it in a couple other translations as well. Psalm 16, 11, You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. In the New Living Translation, in the, in the Christian Standard Bible, the same verse, You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. And at your right hand are eternal pleasures. Did you, did you catch that? The psalmist is talking about a forever joy, eternal joy, eternal pleasure. This isn't the kind of cheap, fleeting pleasures that, that happen in, in one moment, but later are either are nothing or worse, lead us into guilt and shame. But this is the type of joy, the type of pleasure that never ends. Then, in the Bible, in John's biography of Jesus, Jesus lays out the, the two paths we have. One we just read about in these verses in Psalm 16. But Jesus puts it this way. 
Listen, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came so that they, that, that you, may have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. Now, at this point, you might be saying, listen, John read James 1.1. 1, 1. I thought we were starting James. Why are we talking about all this stuff? What's going on here? And you're right. But here's what we have to understand before we get into this letter from James to the church. See, what God is after, what he's trying to do and what he's going to accomplish and what he's, he's trying to lead us to is the deepest, most abundant life possible, the richest and the fullest life imaginable. And we cannot stress this enough. Jesus is not the enemy of life. He's the author of life. Jesus' mission, when he came and he walked the earth and gave his life up for you and for me, was to usher in the kingdom of God and clear the path for you and for me to experience the fullest, abundant life possible, life with him. See, as one writer says, the king of glory is not a taker, he's a giver. And where he takes, he only takes to give. And so that leads us to the the big question, the biggest question we have to ask. How does God lead us into this life? If we've just read in in the Psalms and in Psalm 16 especially that that you have led me, you've you've granted me fullness of life. And, And if Jesus said, listen, I've come that you have life and life to the full, how do we get there? How is God chosen to lead us that way? How are we led into that full, rich, and meaningful life? Because every single one of us craves meaning in our lives, don't we? I'm, I'm helped by Pastor Matt Chandler here, who says that ultimately God leads us using two ways into the abundant life. He says there's, there's two ways, and the first is primary, and the other is, is secondary. It's lesser than the primary way, but it's also necessary. Okay, one is primary, the first is primary, the second is secondary. And we need both of these things and we need to have them ordered properly. First and foremost, the, the way that God leads us into this fullest possible life is by revealing to us who he is. The first thing God does is he shows us who he is through his word, through the Bible, through creation as well. See, for us, the reason we were created was to gaze on him, was to be with him was to have community with God and to, to experience and, and look on his beauty, his glory, his magnitude, and, and at the might of the creator God of the universe. As St. Augustine said so long ago, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We, were, we are created to be with God. Every other promise that, that doesn't come from God, it just crumbles and it turns to ashes in our mouths, as one writer says. See, it's, it's God and God alone that will satisfy our, our deepest longings in our hearts. Everything else is, is just a cheap substitute of that. And now the world around us tries to distract us, doesn't it? It says, listen, no, 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 no. You need this other thing. You need a partner in life. You, you need a spouse. You need a husband. You need a wife. You need a boyfriend. You need this kind of pleasure. You need money. You need a good job. You need to hike that mountain. You need to ski that hill. You need to dive into this ocean, whatever it might be. You need this thing. You need that thing. And all those things that, that, that the world hands to us as replacements for God, they may be good things, and so many of them are good things but they're lesser things. 
those urges and those pulls towards other things, they will all ultimately fall short and betray the deepest longings of our heart in the end. As we've said before, they, they, are, they are good things, but they're not ultimate things, so they cannot be God things in our life. And if you make, again, if you make these good things, ultimate things in your life, and they try to turn into God things in your life, they will crumble under the pressure and they will turn to ash in your mouth. That person that you are trying to make the ultimate thing, that relationship you're longing for, that spouse you have, if you put the weight of an ultimate thing on top of them, you will crush them. You will crush that relationship. If we keep chasing after good things to make them ultimate things in our lives, we'll simply just end up chasing the wind. The whole Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes talks about this. I went after this thing and it was nothing. It was empty. The truth is, what you need and what I need more than anything else is to behold the glory of God to see how great he is, to, to grasp, at least in some little bit, his power and his glory and his might. That's what we're made for, right? Again, as Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And here's the thing. God is, is so about God. He knows him. He knows us that the Bible itself is not about you or me. It's actually all about him. Now, if you and I have grown up in or around church, we may have been told that, that you know what, the Bible is the roadmap to life. The, the Bible is, is God's instruction manual for you and for me. And, and, and I get that and in a sense. That's, that's true and right. But the problem is what can happen when we keep hearing that, oh, the Bible is the roadmap. The Bible is, is your instructions to find God. All of a sudden, we start to make the Bible about us. But the Bible's not primarily about us. The Bible is primarily about God. And if the Bible was about us, just like all those other things, that would be crushing to us because we could never live up to everything that's in here. So it is good for us that the Bible is about him. And so when we read the Bible, we need to come with this sort of idea. We need to come with this lens as we read the Bible, that the Bible is about God. Because what we need most is to see him, to behold and experience him, to be transfixed by his glory and fixated on who he is, so that we can be led into a deeper relationship with God. That's the primary thing. That's what we need. That's what we were created for. This is the process of getting to know God in this way is what we call salvation. It's that, that the Holy Spirit comes and, and opens up our hearts to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ and, and that his work on the cross has, has reconciled us and has bridged the gap in, in between us and God the Father. And, and it allows us to, to do that, to behold the magnitude of the grace and the mercy of God and, and his grace and mercy in rescuing and saving sinners from death. That's primary. That's the most important thing. The second thing we see that's necessary, on top of, of, of God letting us see who he is, on God of him revealing himself to us, is that he makes known to us the path of life. 
And how, do, how does God do this? How does God show us the path of life through the scriptures? Well, we have this list. We have several lists and, and, and scriptures and texts that, that have the thou shalt and the thou shalt not. And this, if you're just, again, checking us out for the first time, this may be something you've heard of and has completely turned you off of, of following anybody. That What gives God the right to tell me what I can and cannot do? But God shows us the path to, to abundant life through the, the ways where he says, you need to be doing this because I know you and I love you, and you need to not do this. But here's something we have to know about these lists. Here's something we have to know about the do this and the don't do that's in the Bible. Every time Jesus is giving us a command, Every time he's calling us to something, he's actually wooing us. He's trying to draw us towards how he designed life to work for us. See, when God says, do this, he's trying to lead you into a life of depth and abundance and meaning and purpose and peace. And when God says, don't do this, he isn't trying to rob you of anything. He isn't trying to steal your fun or your joy or your pleasure. Because really, ultimately, how would God be glorified if his big plan was just to, just to beat us into begrudging submission? That doesn't sound like fun, does it? That doesn't sound like abundant life, begrudging submission. See, but, but God reveals to us first who he is. That's why that's the primary piece here. He reveals to us who he is so that when we see it, we would joyfully come to him. See, it's, it's God's glory, it's his character, it's his goodness, and it's his faithfulness that leads to life. It's not begrudging submission that leads to life. See, the thou shalt not or the don't do this in the Bible, these aren't things that God's trying to hold out on us. And he's not just trying to, 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 to keep things from us, but this is God trying to lead you and to lead me into something that's going to bring us even more joy and more pleasure than anything we could imagine. And so those are the two things. How, God, how does God lead us to life? He reveals who he is and he makes known to us the path of life. So let's talk about the book of James. The book of James, the reason we spent you know, 20 minutes doing what we've just done to get to this point now the book of James is going to do both of these things at the same time. It, it's beautiful in how it does it. He's going to show us the glory and the might of God, show us who God is, while simultaneously laying out between 54 and 60 imperatives or commands or do this and do that, don't do that, in just 108 verses. He's going to do both of these things. James is going to show God going, this is the way, this is the, the way you have to live to find joy and meaning and depth and peace. And so this is really just a super practical little book that we get to see these two things at the same time. We, we see the plan of God. We see salvation, God's saving work for us. This is how God does it. This is how, how God draws him, us to himself. And this is how God wants us to have the fullest life. And we'll also see that obedience part. Here's the path. You need to follow it. Now, the book of James was written by, anybody know? James, well done. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, this is a, a, an interesting note about James. All the evidence we have tells us that while, while Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, while he was, he was walking around, he, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God coming, in those three years of Jesus' public ministry, all the evidence we have suggests that James was not a follower of Jesus. He did not think his half-brother was the Son of God. 
And not only that, we actually have an instance in the gospel where, where James and his, his other brothers and sisters came to, to where Jesus was teaching and they tried to seize him. They tried to, to take him away because they thought Jesus had lost his mind. See, that's what happens when you try to convince your half-brother that you are God. They think you're crazy. But sometime around and after Jesus' death, something in James changes. And over the course of just a few years, James went from trying to have his his half-brother, trying to have Jesus institutionalized, to becoming one of the top leaders, if not the top leader in the Christian church in Jerusalem. You know what happened? You know what caused that change? The resurrection happened. Easter happened. Here's the thing. If you want to convince your half-brother that you are, in fact, the Son of God, here's how you can do it. Die, stay dead for a few days, and then show back up and have a meal with him. That's pretty convincing. Look at how James introduces himself and talks about Jesus now. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word for servant here can also be translated as a slave. This is someone who was sold out, who is, who is 100% given themselves to the one that they're serving. And the Lord Jesus Christ, again, Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. The writer of James wasn't named James Christ. But instead, by identifying Jesus as the Christ, this was a title given to him. It's, it's saying that this was the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the once for all Savior of the world that, that the Jewish people had been waiting for for centuries and centuries and thousands of years. And so the author of James, the one who wrote this letter, is the half-brother of Jesus who was so convinced after the resurrection that Jesus was in fact the Son of God that, that he himself was martyred. He was killed for his faith. Church tradition tells us that, that not long after James wrote this letter, a mob grabbed him, was trying to force him to recant, to say, no, you're, you're wrong. Jesus was not God. Stop teaching this. They forced him up to the top of the temple and they threw him off the temple mount. And somehow the fall didn't kill him. And so they rushed down and they started beating him with sticks. And tradition tells us that he continued to to refuse to recant, to refuse to deny that Jesus was God. And in fact, he was praying for the mob that was beating him. And I, I don't think that liars do this, by the way. But he prayed for the mob until he was murdered by them. That's the man that wrote this book. Scholars would also agree that this is the earliest New Testament manuscript we have, that it's the the first book of the New Testament that was was compiled, so it's the earliest that we have, written sometime in in the early to mid-40s, so very shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. And as that, this, this book is written just a few years after Jesus ascended back to heaven. And if you want to put it in a timeline, we can look at the narrative, the story in the book of Acts of the the beginning years of the church, and we would place this book sometime after uh, the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. See, after that uh, incident that we read about in Acts 7, the followers of Jesus who were in Jerusalem at the time were scattered all throughout the ancient world. And they went out and they, they planted churches and they established new congregations all over the place in the ancient world. And Acts eleven nineteen is another place that, that talks about the church scattered. They went here and here and here and they, they planted churches. And so that's when James is writing, maybe, maybe 10 years after Jesus ascended. And here's who he's writing to. 
to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, again, the the timeline of the the church growing, starting and and growing and spreading. Maybe you remember that that in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people believed and started to follow Jesus. And a couple chapters later, another 5,000 joined the church. And so in the book of Acts, leading up to this time, the church is experiencing tremendous growth in these first few years. And some say that there may have been 18 to 22,000 Christians, followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. That is until we get to Acts 7, and Stephen is stoned to death as the first Christian martyr. And the Bible tells us then, and history tells us that from then on, great persecution against the church in Jerusalem started to happen. And the the Christians started to flee. They started to go out. They started to scatter all throughout the Roman Empire. And wherever they went, they kept talking about Jesus. And they kept establishing churches and congregations. But yet they, they were never really home. They were scattered. And so James is writing this, this letter that would have been circulated among these dispersed people, these displaced people that he calls the 12 tribes. Now, when we hear 12 tribes, and maybe, again, if we've been around the church for a while, the first thing you probably think that the little alarm bell that should go off in your mind is, is there were the 12 tribes of Israel. See, in the Old Testament, God had chosen Israel as his people to display who he is to the world, and, he had, and there were 12 tribes. But what Jesus has in view here and what, what, what James has in view here and what Jesus started to do in his ministry by choosing 12 apostles. So if we look at Jesus, we look at James, and we consider of what all of the Bible teaches, we take this number 12 and 12 tribes and, and, and look at it through the whole Bible and what we call biblical theology. The understanding that we have then is that these 12 tribes are, are not just Jews, Christian Jews, but rather everyone that who has come to know Jesus as Lord. As Paul writes later, Jew and Greek, slave and free, barbarian or Greek, Jew or Gentile, excuse me. And so James is writing to the church, the true church, the followers of Jesus who have been dispersed, who have been scattered all around the world. And James is writing to encourage the church that's, that's living out their days in an increasingly hostile environment. He's encouraging them to to live lives that are dependent on God and not give themselves over to to the presumed comforts of the world. He's saying, listen, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing. Keep God the main thing. So here's here's how this letter breaks down chapter by chapter. In chapter one, he talks about perseverance. He talks about hearing the word of God and doing the word of God. In chapter 2, he talks about the sin of partiality, that you treat some people better than others because of what they can do for you. How relevant is that in our day right now? And he goes on and talks about words and deeds. In chapter 3, he talks about taming the tongue and how wisdom comes from, from God and, and not from our own hearts. Chapter 4, he, he warns against worldliness and, and boasting in tomorrow when it's, it's not in our control. He talks about being arrogant in that. And in chapter 5, he, he warns against trusting in, in riches and comforts to satisfy your, your longings and your needs. And, and he calls the church to patient and suffering, a patient suffering and prayer. Now, when the church would have received this letter, they would have, in that place, they would have all gathered together. They would have, they would have sat down and they read it, would have had it read to them start to finish in one sitting. They may have had some meals together. They would have probably sung some hymns together. And so when they, they heard these words from James that we're going to dig into, these five chapters we just outlined even, 
They would have understood them in their context. They would have understood what James was talking about. Now, in some ways, and in maybe a lot of ways, their context is different than ours in that it was 2,000 years ago. But in other ways, I mean, look at that list. Some things just really haven't changed that much, have they? Relationships were still broken. People lied and stole and cheated and gossiped. The early church wasn't perfect. Sexuality was confused. People were, were, were marriage was broken. People were divorcing and, and, and doing things outside of marriage. They weren't supposed to be brought into marriage. The, the early church wasn't perfect, just like we're not perfect. And so here's what I want you to do this week as we start to head towards a close. And I'm going to post this. It's going to be beside me here. I'll post this sort of list uh, in the sermon notes and, and, and uh, on the page and on Facebook as well. But I want you to sit down this week and read James in one sitting. Take some time. It might take 15, 16 minutes. Close the door, lock the kids in the basement or something, or, I mean, give them something to do. But, but find some time and slowly read the book, maybe even read it out loud to yourself so that you would be experiencing it just like that early church might have heard it the first time. And here's a, here's a few things that I want you to look for, and this is, what I'll, this is what I'll post. I want you to look as you read. I want you to look and see that, that trials and suffering, they're never surprises to God. I appreciate how, how one writer said, God, God's not an ambulance driver showing up in an emergency to try to fix things. No, no, God is in control. God never promises us that we won't suffer, but he does promise us that he is always with us and he will be with us in the suffering. I want you to notice too as you read that, that God is about progress, not just perfection. This is, this is a process. As we work through these things, even as we're going to see next week, consider it, uh, you know, joy, brothers, when you meet trials because the, the trials test your faith and, and testing of your faith produces endurance. And when that happens, you, you grow and then maturity and then you, you can't continue to work through these things. God's about progress, not just perfection. He knows it's a process. And wherever we have faith involved, there is movement forward. And finally, the last thing I want you to notice that James talks about in this letter is that the constant pull of the world that says that, that riches and comfort will be enough to satisfy you, the pleasures of this world will be enough to satisfy you, that that pull is always a lie. It's pulling us away from God. So watch, watch for those three things, that the trials and sufferings aren't surprises to God, that God is about progress, and that the pull of the world is a lie. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for this book. Thank you for the book of James, and I thank you for the Bible, and I thank you for the reminder that you use it to tell us all about you, about, God, your immensity, your glory, your might, and your love for every single one of us. Jesus, I ask that, that you would give each one of us the dedication and the discipline to sit down at some point in the next few days and, and read the book of James in one sitting, and I ask that you would speak loudly to us through it. Listen, maybe you're, you're tuning in today and, and you're not sure where you stand with God. I, I want to remind you of where we started out this morning, that the creator of the universe knows the hairs on your head and the days of your life, and he wants to lead you into a way that brings abundant life, that brings you meaning and purpose and value. And if you're not sure about any of that right now, I would be honored to pray with, with you. I'll pray with you right now, but you can also hit that little live chat live prayer button in our church online page or head to our website at trinitycanmore.com slash prayer and, and fill out a form and I would love to pray with you then too. But let, me, let me pray for us. Jesus, we want to hear from you. We want to know you more. 
we, we know that there are times where we not, may not be so sure about our faith, but I ask that you would reveal yourself to us and show us the path that leads to life. Show us where we're going our own way and where we're on the path that leads us away from you. And Jesus, in our uncertainty too, I, I would ask that you would speak to us, reveal yourself to us, and help us to, to turn and, and to repent and to reorient our lives so that we were walking alongside you. Now listen, as, as you're watching as well, maybe today is the day where God has made it clearer or clear to you that he is for you and he loves you and he only wants what's best for you. Uh, like the perfect parent he is, the, the no's that he gives are for your protection and for your good and he's not holding out on you. Maybe today's the day when you want to stop going your way and you want to start trusting God and start down that path that leads to abundant life. You don't have to have all the answers and you don't have to have it all figured out, but today might be the day where you commit to following Jesus. Uh, who is Jesus? Again, remember, this is what James discovered, right? He is the Son of God, perfect in every way, who walked this world to show us how to have a right relationship with God, with creation, and with one another. Jesus was perfectly obedient to God in every way, even to the point of death on a cross to take our place as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice. But then he rose from the dead three days later, conquering our three greatest enemies in Satan, sin, and death. And, and why did he do this? Why did Jesus do this? So that anyone who calls on his name would be saved, would be forgiven, and would be transformed. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how dark your life feels. When you call on Jesus' name, he hears your prayer and he is just to forgive you and he makes you new. If today is your day, if this is your time to commit to Jesus and you're on our church online page, you can hit that little raise hand button, which will let us reach out to you and celebrate with you. If you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, you can go over to trinitycanmore.com slash commit. Put a link in the comments there for that so we can celebrate and connect with you as well. And if that's you, if you've raised your hand today, I would invite you to pray this prayer with me and I would invite all of us to pray this prayer together. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. Change me and make me new. Help me to follow you. Jesus, be my savior. Be Lord of my life. Fill me with your spirit so that I can serve you. I can follow you so that I can make you known. My life is not my own. Lord, I give it to you. Thank you for the gift of new life. And now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Listen, today was somebody's day to pray that for the first time. And so we want to celebrate them. We want to welcome them into Jesus' family. We want to give God a hand for all that he's up to, that he continues to work with us and for us and through us and in us. And it's just an amazing thing as he leads us towards abundant life. So we want to celebrate that. I'm going to, going to throw it back to our music team now as they lead us in a closing song.